Waar we al voor vreesden is echt gebeurd. Peter de Vries is op 64-jarige leeftijd overleden. Negen dagen nadat hij in het centrum was. Hij altijd zei dat ik vrij wil gaan, om iedereen te spreken. Peter was niet de kind of guy die zit sippen cocktails op de beach en goede boeken. Hij zou schrijven de boeken. Je weet, de stories. Ik Nicola Talent en je luistert naar Crime World, een podcast over criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Dutch crime reporter Peter Orr de Vries died in hospital yesterday, a week after he was shot on a busy street in an attack which has drawn outrage across Europe. As his family and friends mourn the enormity of his death, police are focusing on the advisory role he was playing to Dutch state witness Nabil B., who is set to give evidence against his one-time gang boss, Ridwan Taji, in a trial known as Marengo. Taji, an associate of Daniel Kinahan, is already suspected of being behind the murder of Nabil B's innocent brother and of his lawyer, Dirk Worsham, a father of two young children gunned down on the doorstep of his Amsterdam home in 2019. This week, as de Vries still clung to life, I was talking with the Telegraph journalist Saskia Bellman, who worked alongside the celebrity journalist and who saw him only days before he was shot. She tells me how criticism is now being levelled at police decisions around the security of the under threat journalist, how reports of suspicious activities around the murder scene in the days before the shooting are emerging, and how two suspects have just gone on trial for the murder of Wearsome. We discuss the types of criminals who carry out these horrendous acts of narco-terrorism, the disconnect they have with their victims, and the long-term effects the murder of De Vries will have for Taji's trial. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. You see those killers and you look at them and usually they're young. These are actually rather old, uh, 32 and 37. Uh, Usually they're a lot younger, um, much easier to influence. But I mean, these guys were really easy to influence uh, too. So I think they must have had something they could be blackmailed with or they wanted to earn money. They both had debts. So... It's so easy to get those guys to do something like that. But it's, you know, if you, if you listen to them talk about their own families and how important their kids are to them, and at the same time, they just shoot the father of two kids. And I don't even think about it. A total disconnect. And do you think, um, okay, so they're on trial, so we have yeah. to... Wait we have see. to say they're, 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 they're innocent until proven guilty, but... Mm. Um, do they have any idea of the seriousness and of the significance of the murder of Dirk Worsham? The fact that he was a lawyer? Do they understand the that implications? That is, mm. No, I don't think so. No. They do um, understand it in a way because they know what kind of a jail sentence uh, they could get if they're proven guilty. But uh, 
I don't think they, you know, after the father of this lawyer talked, they said they really thought it was sad for the family and they felt for the family, but, you know, two lines and that was it. Um, and then they talked about themselves mainly. So, no, I don't really think they understand what the implication is of killing a lawyer. And like it is a line in the sand that was crossed there in 2019 and, mm. you know, here we are just a few years on and there's just, there's another one. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned to me that you had sat beside Peter or de Vries in the court, in the, in the bunker, was it? On the Marengo trial? Yeah, well, two trials, the, the two days during the Marengo trial. And there was another trial going on in which he played a, a rather important part uh, in another court building. And I was sitting there two, uh, two days ago. Um, he was uh, the spokesman of the family in that uh, in that case. Peter was more than just a crime journalist. He was also the confidant of the crime witness. He was a spokesman for several families of missing kids um, or kids that got killed, but where never uh, the case was solved. So he he somehow helped families to solve those cases. He was really important to them. Uh, but it was also a bit confusing because he had so many different hats on his head, we say. Uh, yeah. You never knew exactly who you were talking to, the journalist or the confidant of the Crown Witness or the spokesperson of certain families. Yeah, I mean, the confidant of the Crown Witness is one that is curious, perhaps, because mm-hmm. Nabil B is a criminal. He was part of Ridwan Taji's gang. Now, obviously, Justice is being challenged when his brother and his lawyer are both murdered as he is due to give evidence in a criminal trial. But he doesn't sound like, he sounds like he's a different type of a victim to the other victims that Peter or de Vries represented over the years. Yeah, Peter never represented criminals before, although he did make friends with criminals. I mean, it's obvious that you have contacts in the criminal uh, circles because, you know, being a criminal reporter, you have to have your connections. Uh, so years ago, there was this uh, kidnapping of Mr. Heineken, uh, you know, the beer brewer. Yeah. Um, well, one of the kidnappers became a really good friend of Peter, but he never defended him in court, never represented him, never acted as a spokesperson. And now, all of a sudden, he, um, yeah, as a, as a, a fighter against injustice, um, he did seem to cross a line by representing a man who is um, on trial for two murders himself. He is a crime witness, but he's also a suspect of two murders. So, yeah, that, that was new. Uh, it surprised us all. And funny, I, I mentioned to Peter Vandermeersch, our own publisher here mm-hmm. in uh, Ireland and part of the Media House group that we both work for. I would like to think at 64, I ain't going to be doing this job. I don't know how you feel about that, Saskia, but... Oh, no, Peter wasn't the kind of guy who would sit uh, sipping cocktails on the beach and reading the books. He would be writing the books and, you know, living the stories. I suppose I more so mean that I'd like to think I would be avoiding trouble yeah. at that, at that state, stage of my career. And that, um, you know, while I suppose you wouldn't like to think you'd walk away from people that victims who needed you or whatever, I would like to think that I might not be fraternizing with criminals as much. But look, hindsight is a great thing, obviously. 
he was shot in such a public fashion and yeah. that in itself must have been so shocking. It was. To Amsterdamers, yeah. yeah. It just left the studio of RTL Boulevard, which is a kind of entertainment-like program uh, with a very large uh, crime component in it. And Peter and my colleague, John van der Heuvel, uh, they are the crime um, experts for the program. Now, my colleague, John, is being guarded very heavily already for three and a half years. Uh, but Peter didn't. Uh, and he just, you know, walked out of the studio, went to the parking garage to go to his car uh, and was shot uh, by a young guy that immediately ran away. And it was in the middle of the street with so many restaurants and terraces. It was nice weather. So there, was, there were so many people in the streets. There are cameras everywhere. So, you know, he didn't even try to hide his face, to hide what, what he was doing. He just did it. Uh, yeah, that was really, really, really shocking. And on the other, on the other hand, uh, it wasn't because Peter wasn't protected properly. Um, he never wanted the kind of protection that my colleague John van der Heuvel gets. He always said, I want to be free to move around, to talk to everybody I want. I don't want people around me all the time because, you know, if I have to talk to my contacts in criminal circles, they don't like it if people walk around me with those ears in their, you know, in their ears, uh, mm. the kind of police, no, well, obviously police officers. Uh, so he didn't want that. But yesterday I was on a talk show with, his, with the two lawyers of the, the Crown Witness uh, and they said the police could have done more. Uh, they could have, you know, even if he refused to be guarded, they could have uh, followed him around. You know, you, you, you don't need to be in the same car. You don't need to go to all the same places, but follow him. Look what's going on. Look what people around him are doing. Um, what we heard is that a lot of owners of restaurants in the area said, um, that they noticed in the, the days before Peter was shot that a lot of young Moroccan uh, boys were walking around, you know, just hanging around, doing nothing, looking at each other, looking at the street, looking at the people, and, you know, never nobody paid much attention to it. But then afterwards, they suddenly realized those little boys must have been spotters. And, you know, if there would have been some more protection, maybe someone would have noticed, would have realized something's going on here and we should do something. I was reading something about that debate about, you know, that he didn't want protection, but should mm. the police not have just, you know, you know, sort of policed him as such. Yeah. Um, now, I'm trying to use Google Translate for a lot of this stuff, so it's not ideal, but there is a situation, there has been a situation here of a feud and individuals who would be targets who do not want police protection are very much not followed around perhaps, but their homes and that are, are watched and guarded very publicly yeah. because there is such a critical threat to their lives. And yeah. it sounds as if as if Peter or de Vries was in that position. So um, presumably that is criticism being leveled at the police um, you know, over there, did he have a relationship with the police? Like yeah, a, he had a good relationship yeah. with the police for years already, but it's somehow I always get the feeling that the police doesn't take it seriously enough. Uh, that, you know, when Peter de Vries says, I don't want protection, that he say, well, okay, if that's your choice, we, we won't, we'll stay away. But there are different ways. 
in which you can protect people. You know what you said, but you can look at his house, you can put a police car in front every once in a while so that everybody who tries to do something realizes, oh God, they're, they're watching him, they're around him somewhere. And maybe that will scare somebody off. You don't know, of course, you, you'll never know if that would have helped, but not doing anything, uh, you know, that sounds a bit too easy. Was the television show he was recording, he was recording it or it was live? No, it was live. It was live. Yeah. So that would always be something that would not be advised for a crime journalist who was in some sort of, exactly. you know, at risk not to go on live TV or certainly to appear on a on a video link would probably be safer. But um, again, hindsight is, is a thing that yeah. we, we have to. So what of the suspects that were arrested, mm-hmm. is there any information on who they are linked to? Well, the general idea is that they are linked to the organization of Ridwan Tachi, uh, the main suspect in the big Marengo trial that's going on now in, in Holland. There's no proof as yet, but there are certain links in the direction of this organization. Uh, one of the guys, and probably the one who shot, uh, is linked to a guy that was convicted in another trial. Uh, it was called 26 Copper. It's a very strange name, but it was an organization that delivered weapons and cars and all kinds of things to uh, hitmen. Uh, They were convicted to long uh, jail sentences, um, but one of those guys is linked to this suspected shooter. So yeah, it's it's, um, almost impossible not to think of Ridwan Tachi because Peter is the third person close to the crown witness who um, uh, has been attacked now. Of course, it can have something to do with his work as a crime journalist, but it's more logical to think of this link. Uh, First, we've seen, of course, the murder of the brother of the crime witness, then two years ago, the lawyer of the crime witness, and now the confidant of the crime witness. Well, that's all a bit too... Uh, too coincidental, you might say. So the Wearsome murder trial has begun, as we spoke about at the beginning of this podcast. Mm. Marengo, what's happening with it? Uh, Marengo is uh, now, till September, nothing happens in Marengo. So that's, uh, they're all on a holiday, apart from the suspects. Um, And the trial against the two uh, supposed uh, hitman of uh, lawyer Der Kriersen is still going on. Uh, today was the second day. Tomorrow we will hear what um, the uh, the prosecutor uh, thinks they should get, what kind of a jail sentence. And then next week, still two days, uh, when we will listen to, um, to the lawyers. And that's it then. Okay, and Nabil B, the last we were covering the Marengo case, he had stopped talking. He was deciding that yeah. he was having issues with his security. And, and also issues with his health, his, his, uh, his mental health mainly. Uh, yesterday evening I spoke to his lawyers and they said, well, obviously, uh, you know, this, this attack on his confidant doesn't really help his mental health. So I think it's going to be a long time before this crime witness decides to talk again. Well, in the meantime, we can we just send you our best from Ireland and um, much appreciated. And um, Peter or De Vries send our wishes to his family, and we'll catch up with you soon, Saskia, to follow up on all these awful trials that you're covering. Okay. So thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.
You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. 